on our podcast, we feature just a few of our interviews from the program. Today, a reduced isolation period for those who test positive for COVID-19, a Vancouver MP's response to China arresting journalists in Hong Kong, and Eve Lazarus on her book, Vancouver Exposed. That's coming up on Weekend Mornings with Raji Sohal podcast. Well, the CDC in the States was recently met with public backlash and even actually a little bit of ridicule when they reduced recommendations for isolation periods from 10 to 5 days. And soon after, the rules changed here too. So here to talk to me now about that all is Cynthia Carr. She's an epidemiologist and principal consultant with EPI Research. Good morning, Cynthia. Good morning, Thank you so much uh, for taking time with us this morning. So the CDC said that they changed the isolation rules because people with COVID-19 are most infectious in the two days before and three days after symptoms develop. And I'm stuck on the words most infectious, like otherwise still infectious, but less so. I'm not sure how that works. So help us understand the science behind their decision, please. Sure. And this has been part of the tricky part of this virus all along, is that you are most infectious actually in the one to two days before you develop symptoms. That means you have the highest viral load, um, so easier for that to kind of get in the air if you're talking, sneezing, or um, just otherwise, uh, you know, breathing because it can, it can become kind of aerosolized uh uh, droplets in the air. So um, the one to two days before your symptoms and then the kind of two to three after your symptoms is when you're carrying the most viral load. And what we're also finding with Omicron is that period happens like quite quick. Um, so the problem with um, previous um, strains of this virus was that that period where you were infected and then knew it had symptoms could be like as long as 10 days. Now it's much faster. So once you're infected, you tend to get symptomatic or have that um, high viral load very quickly. Um, so that's why we're kind of seeing this fast, fast, fast uh, numbers of cases happening because it's happening, you know, early, which in a way is good. Um, and that is leading to these um, kind of new guidelines. I see. Okay. So it wasn't the case. Uh, It was different during the Delta variants rise. Is that right then? So it was always the case that you were most infectious in that two days before you had symptoms. The challenge was it could be seven, eight days after you were infected that you developed those symptoms. What we're seeing with Omicron is it seems to happen much faster, that once you're infected, that kind of that peak period seems to start right away. Um, so it's less likely that 10 days later you would still be, um, that you would still be infectious. I see. Okay. You say less likely. Is it possible, though, that somebody would 10 days afterwards still be somewhat infectious? About 90% of cases, according to CDC, uh, do occur uh, within that, uh, that tight period of time. So, yes, is it is possible, obviously, that 5% of cases uh, do occur outside of that, that peak kind of uh, uh, infectious period. Um, but that's why with that are the recommendations or the guidelines. Obviously, if you have any symptoms at all, this does not apply to you. If you're not vaccinated, for most uh, jurisdictions, this does not apply to you. And you must continue to be very cautious about wearing that well-fitting mask. So those other layers of protection are still absolutely uh, in play uh, to reduce the 
um, threat of transmission, but but given the impact on people's lives, the willingness to comply with these 10 days of isolation, and the science that shows really it, it's very low likelihood of transmission past that, that's led to these uh, new guidelines. Okay, I see. And what's happening across Canadian provinces now with isolation periods? Well, certainly we're seeing many coming on board uh, with that five-day uh, changing, including obviously uh, British Columbia, including uh, Manitoba, uh, provinces in the Maritimes as well. So it really didn't take long uh, for, uh, you know, leadership across uh, really the world to start really looking at the data, looking at compliance and making these changes as well. But again, with caution, this, this really, for the most part, when I look at guidelines, it's very clear about for vaccinated people and always asymptomatic only. Yeah, Cynthia, um, is there a chance that we might even see it reduced further? Say, for example, if there was another variant that came on that was that moved even faster? I, I, I mean, I, I guess it could happen, but usually it does take, you know, that kind of five days, including the leading up uh, to your peak period of infection uh, and then kind of tapering off um, you know, it, it could be a bit shorter. Influenza is very short, but but not by much. Influenza is uh, pretty much within 48 hours of, of getting that infection, you're down. You, you know you're sick. You feel those symptoms. So, you know, this is pretty quick. Um, so I, I really wouldn't see it going much shorter. I've heard uh, and read that CDC's position was done to prevent essential workers from being off the job for 10 days. Is that, like, do you think a significant part of the decision? You know, there's always multiple variables that come into play in real life, as opposed to, you know, ideally through a lab setting, what we understand. But it is guided by the science. The science is very much showing the change with this variant, um, which, you know, is taking out, uh, you know, large proportions of the workforce. Uh, even here in Manitoba, we had a sevenfold increase in infections in healthcare workers in, wow. you know, over a two-week period. So imagine all of those health workers out for 10 days uh, when they really don't need to be. And again, in the healthcare system, we have to remember um, they're very compliant with personal protection equipment. They're wearing N95 masks, gloves, uh, could be wearing face shields as well, um, gowns. So they're very, uh, again, adding those additional layers of protection. And nobody would be coming back to work with symptoms. Um, but we have to consider the impact on society if we don't have um, enough healthcare workers. And it's not just about COVID. It's for all aspects of our health system. So how does someone know if they're no longer contagious? I know there's testing, but, you know, I'm sure you're aware that in BC, a lot of people don't have access to tests. That's right. So we've gone from, you know, over 50 million tests done in Canada, over 5 million done in BC, uh, which sounds like a ton, but now because there's just so much need for it, uh, and there was sort of starting to shut down because we thought we were getting over uh, some of the acute crisis, um, there definitely is a shortage of supply. 
So again, if you have any symptoms at all, uh, even if you have not been tested yet, you need to act as though this could be that this is COVID because the symptoms um, in many cases with Omicron are very similar to a cold, that fatigue, headache, runny nose. So it's easy to confuse that you need to act as though it's COVID even if you haven't been tested. Um, And again, so count that five days. When were the two days before I started feeling any symptoms at all? And then go to a full three days after that. Um, And if you have no symptoms, um, then, you know, wear a a well-fitting KN95 if possible, mask, and kind of continue with caution. Uh, But if you have no symptoms at all, then obviously uh, you're still meeting the criteria of not having symptoms. Yeah. Um, I, how much more do we know about the symptoms changing? Uh, just last night, as I was preparing for this interview, I was reviewing some studies that were done in Spain and in the UK, uh, looking at the link between skin conditions that were flaring up for people as a first sign that they might have COVID. Have you come across any of this? Now, that's very interesting because that sort of rash was kind of low right, on rashes. the list. Yeah, um, uh, in previous uh, variants of COVID-19, I haven't seen that as becoming a more common with Omicron, so that's some interesting new research. The research that I'm seeing, including coming out of the UK of over 50,000 people, was the top three symptoms were those very common cold, the headache, the runny nose, and the fatigue, which this time of year people could confuse for just, you know, being run down, tired, or a cold. Um, so in many ways, it's good because it's showing it's staying in our upper respiratory system. It's not getting down into that danger zone of our lower respiratory system, which can lead to pneumonias and, you know, need for uh, serious intervention. Uh, but that's where it, why it can kind of be uh, confusing. But I would just encourage people not to ignore it. And with that information you've just provided, uh, remember that, you know, a rash was always kind of on the list uh, and it may be coming uh, one of the more common ones for, for this variant. Cynthia, thank you so much for taking some time with us today. You're welcome. Well, this next story is about how folks in Canada are putting pressure on the government to do more to condemn some of China's behavior. Vancouver MP Jenny Kwan issued a statement calling for Canada to condemn the arrest of seven journalists with pro-democracy media outlet Stand News in Hong Kong. And Kwan joins me on the line now. Hello, Jenny. Good morning. Happy New Year. Good morning. Happy New Year. Thank you so much for giving us some time today on this Sunday. Well, what led you to stand up and uh, use your voice on this issue? Well, I've been watching the Hong Kong situation unfold closely for some time now and have been becoming increasingly concerned uh, with what's happening. And the latest news of the arrests of journalists from uh, Stan News uh, is just absolutely devastating to me. I was born in Hong Kong and raised in Hong Kong. And of course, to see the freedom of the press really erode the way that it is being done right now in Hong Kong sends really shockwaves to all of us, really. is a cherished, cherished thing to have, a cherished right to have the freedom of the press. You know, in any government, we need the press to actually share information with the public to provide, you know, uh, different points of view and even criticisms of government. And here we are in Hong Kong that is completely being violated and it sends a clear message 
that the one country, two system in Hong Kong is absolutely dead. And the approach that the Chinese authorities have taken clearly is in violation of their own basic law, of the violation of uh, Hong Kong's basic law, which guarantees the freedom of the press. But now that is no more. And this is the reality of what's going on in Hong Kong. I feel very strongly that those of us who are in in the international community need to speak out against this, need to rally together and work with each other uh, to support the people of Hong Kong at this very critical time. In recent weeks, we hear of these arrests abroad, and I think people are almost becoming just kind of immune to it. But how serious is what happened with Stan News and the arrests? Yeah, I think you're right. There's an element where things are just getting so bad in Hong Kong that, you know, people kind of think, oh, well, that's almost normal because it's happening regularly. But the reality is this. They, uh, a year ago, they went after um, Apple Daily, which is uh, another media outlet, print press, uh, went after the owner, Jimmy Lai, and other journalists within that operation. Uh, And so now they're going after an online uh, publication of Stan News, which is a nonprofit, by the way, and funded by by readers uh, of 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 that uh, of that outlet, and they went after them uh, with these uh, arrests and with the raid. Um, they're going after the media. So today, they you know they went after media that are locally uh, stationed in Hong Kong. Who's to say that they won't go after? Uh, international media who's been stationed, uh, you know, international media journalists uh, who are in operating in Hong Kong right now. The truth of the matter is, is that none of us are safe because their national security law could apply anywhere across the globe, not just people in Hong Kong, not just people in China, but anywhere. In fact, right now, for me to be speaking out, speaking out against uh, the Chinese authorities with the national security law, I could be deemed to be in violation of that law. They could be coming after me. The only reason why they can't go after me is because I'm in Canada. But were I to travel to Hong Kong one day or to travel to China or even be in transit at an airport where they have an extradition agreement with China, I could run into trouble. That is how serious the situation is. And we actually have a Canadian who's been arrested with this pack of individuals, Denise Ho, who's a, a, a pop star, but also a activist for human rights. She was on the board of Stan News, and, um, and she's been arrested as well. So nobody's immune. You could be a Canadian, and you could still be faced with these kinds of trumped-up charges. There's so much to unpack with what you just said, but you did mention the Canadian that was arrested. That's Denise Ho. And our foreign affairs minister here in Canada, Melanie Jolie, issued a statement actually over Twitter in response saying that Canada will always support freedom of press. I'm sure you came across that statement. What did you make of it? Is it enough? And what kind of message does it send? Well, I think it's important for the government to express support and to condemn the action. Um, But equally important, of course, is for the Canadian government to take action. It is essential for us to um, work with uh, ally countries to to fight back on this situation. I really um, am fearful of what's going on right now and how 
this will extend beyond the people in Hong Kong. It is a complete attack on the freedom of the press, something that we cherish very much. And so we need to take action, and I hope that our Canadian government will do so, work with our international allies uh, to fight this issue. I've, you know, I just recently signed on to a letter with other uh, electives and other community folks uh, to call on the UNHCR to uh, take action with regards to this as well, to look and see what is going on with Hong Kong and to take action. Jenny Kwan, have you ever been targeted by the Chinese government? Uh, well, not so far, luckily. Uh, and um, But that doesn't mean to say that we're immune. Uh, as I indicated, the national security law that Hong Kong passed uh, could apply to anyone uh, across the globe, whether you're in Canada or in France or anywhere across the globe. And uh, at this moment, I haven't yet. My colleagues, though, uh, who sat on the um, subcommittee on human rights in the House of Commons in the last parliament, a number of them has been sanctioned by the Chinese authorities. So my colleague, MP Heather McPherson, who was on that committee, and she's been sanctioned, uh, as has the Conservative MP, um, Michael Chong. He, too, has been sanctioned. And so, um, you know, Canadians have been sanctioned by Chinese authorities in speaking speaking out against human rights violations uh, by Chinese authorities. It's very distressing. Well, thank you so much for uh, joining us this morning, for giving us some time. And this is uh, something that we'll, we'll be certain to follow up with as well. Thank you so much. A lot of us are getting around to the best of lists this week. And there was one I was really excited about. It's Vancouver Public Library's uh, really good list of most borrowed books of 2021. And in the nonfiction category, alongside Barack Obama's memoir and Malcolm Gladwell's latest books was one from a Vancouver author, Eve Lazarus's book, Vancouver Exposed. And it's exactly what the title says. It's an exploration of Vancouver's hidden past through its uh, people, events, neighborhoods, buildings, institutions, and it's super entertaining. And I thought we'd catch up with the author and she's on the line with you now. Good morning, Eve. Good morning. Really enjoyed uh, quickly reading this book and catching uh, up with the characters and places and buildings of Vancouver's past. First of all, what did you make of finding out that your book was one of the most borrowed books of 2021 at the VPL? I was completely stunned, you know, of all the books you could borrow to, to pick Vancouver history. You know, for a history nerd like myself, that w- was so crazy and, uh, and rewarding that, that people are really interested in, you know, what's beneath the, the layers of the city. Okay, so you know people listening in across BC, and actually we have some listeners uh, from throughout Canada and, and the world even, they're hearing your accent and they're going, huh, hold on. <laughs> so you have to explain that. Yeah, I'm Australian and I came over around um, the time of Expo and I've been a reporter for decades, mostly a business reporter and I was never particularly interested in history. I always thought it was, you know, these streets named after old white guys and, you know, stuff that wasn't particularly appealing, forestries and, you know, all of that sort of stuff. And 
never really did much about it. And then I was reading something about a guy called James Johnston. And, and James is a historian who digs around in people's you know, health histories and finds out all this incredible information about who lived there and you know, weird things that happen in the house. And I started writing about James and um, just loving this idea that a house had a social history like a person. And to do that, I had to get a real sense of Vancouver's history. And, and what I found is that we had this incredibly exciting underbelly that was, you know, just so much more than, than what I'd seen in traditional history. And I, I just sort of took this idea and ran with it and, and wrote a book called At Home With History that came out in 2007. And what I was finding when I was looking at these houses, I'd find bootleggers and brothels and, and corrupt cops and, and murder stories and just this really interesting stuff. And after the, the book came out, people would send me um, notes and, and they'd say, oh, you know, Grandma was a, a madam and, you know, Uncle Sam was a bootlegger. And they'd send me <laughs> business cards of bootleggers and they'd send me photos from the family album. And I had nowhere to put this stuff. Wow. And I started a, a blog called Every Place Had a Story and, and just got really obsessed with it and just collecting with people's stuff and really what it did it was became a repository for other people's history and um, after about 10 years you know I realized the 10th year anniversary was coming up and talked to my publisher about doing something with it and uh, Vancouver Exposed happened. Yeah you started out doing that blog ages ago around was it 2010? Yeah. Yeah, so at that time, I wasn't living in Vancouver, but having grown up in Vancouver, I remember coming across your blog and going, huh, what happened to No Funcouver? This place sounds amazing. <laughs> and the blog was incredible. Your book reads a bit like investigative journalism at time, like like you're doing some detective work about this place. Um, and you uncover these things that people wouldn't have thought of to be mysterious in the first place. And then you show how they're so interesting. And, you know, a lot of people know Vancouver as being no fun Coover. And so what is it that makes you so curious about Vancouver's haunts and treasures? Um, so many things. You know, I love the idea of the evolution of the city. And a lot of the book, as you'll see, is, you know, buildings that you may not have known ever existed. And I think that's a real shame. You know, I'm not a let's not change anything person. Um, I think that we should really embrace our heritage and do better with it. But it fascinates me with, with areas. And I remember, you know, several years ago finding this photo, as I often do, you know, on the Vancouver archives. And this incredible picture taken in 1924, and it's looking up Georgia Street. And there's all these incredible heritage buildings. There's a Strand Theatre. There's a Burke's, there's a second Hotel Vancouver. And the only building I recognised was that the clock tower of the, of the Vancouver block. Mm-hmm. And I started to think, well, what else was did we have at Granville and Georgia, that kind of epicentre of, of Vancouver? And, and I started really digging around. And, and it was so interesting to me that the Pacific Centre, which was, you know, there when I got there, and, you know, this ugly, I, I guess we used to call it, what, the urinal, and had all these awful names for it, and uh, had just sort of taken out three major blocks of the city with all these incredible buildings. So that was kind of where I started off. And the, the cover of the book is actually the Burke's building that came down in 1972. And, and what also gets me is, you know, it could be today, you know, people outraged that we're ripping down this gorgeous, you know, building. 
and um, trying to do something about it. And they actually had a, a funeral for the Burke's building with this 11-storey sort of Edwardian thing that sat right um, where the ugly London Drugs building in the Scotia Tower is now. And, you know, people were just outraged and they marched and they wore video costumes and, and things. <laughs> I had a, a friend of mine that was a, a bus driver for 40 years, Angus McIntyre, and he was very young at the time and he'd ridden his bike down and he'd taken all these fantastic photos of the um, the parade and it also shows a lot of the buildings that are long gone now in the book. So that, that was just, you know, such a thrill to, to be able to put that in there. Yeah, well, there's these pages of uh, how the Eaton department store, you write, uh, was going to take the place of some really beautiful cultural buildings that I can't even, I can't even, looking at the photos, I can't believe it, that it was in Vancouver. The the Lyric Theatre went down for the Eaton department store, Granville Mansions, the York Hotel, these just exquisite looking buildings. And I, like you, I try not to be one of these people who's not, uh, don't change anything and don't demolish anything, but you know, you do see this, the loss of some really beautiful cultural relics in that area. Oh, my God, yes. And, you know, I've tried to lay it out, you know, in the blocks. And I've got a fantastic designer who sort of put these out. And, and we've put sort of like obituaries. You know, these were the years 1905 to 1969 or whatever. And, you know, some lasted as little as 15 years. We built this amazing, you know, like the CPR station at the bottom of Granville. And it lasted less than 15 years. It's just unbelievable. And and I think, you know, a lot of people don't know that we had three Hotel Vancouver's. And, you know, the first one opened in, in the 1880s at uh, Granville and Georgia, where Nordstrom's is now. And that was replaced in 1916 by the second Hotel Vancouver. And it was this incredibly gorgeous sort of Italian Renaissance 16-story building that was incredibly ornate. They had gargoyles and buffalo heads and it had this amazing roof garden and you know it lasted well not very long in, in 1949 it got pulled down for a parking lot which we love to do and um sat as a parking lot for 25 years and then became the, the black td bank tower how sad almost in fact there's a photo in the book you mentioned hotel hotel vancouver and there's a photo of this stunning elaborate mural and it says it's in Hotel Vancouver. And I'm going, huh, I've never seen that in person. What's the story behind that one? Oh, wasn't that interesting? Yeah, that's um, a, a sculptor called Beatrice Lenny. And um, she was commissioned in 1939. So, you know, first of all, we've got a woman sculptor, which is really unusual. She went to the Vancouver School of Arts. But in 1939, she was commissioned to build this 12-foot uh, mural for the lobby of the Hotel Vancouver, and it was called Accession. And from the one little photo I've been able to find of it, which is in the book, you know, it looks absolutely beautiful. And um, so it stayed there until 1967 when the hotel decided to renovate the building, and they just walled it up. So when you go into the lobby of the Hotel Vancouver, you'll see that elevator bank. Yeah. At the end of it, and there's kind of this big um, piece of art sort of on the wall now, but behind that is Beatrice Lenny's mural, as well as two other elevators that were just walled up. So I can't wait for the next renovation until that, you know, sort of comes out. Hopefully it's in, you know, good condition. So is it covered from the public view? Yeah, yeah, it's walled up. It's completely walled up. Is that like due to wanting to preserve it? Well, either that or just laziness. 
Oh, no, don't say that. That is so oh. sad because it's really stunning. Oh, yeah. And there's another one um, in the... It used to be the Canada building at 900 West Hastings, and it was yeah. built new in 1965. Do you know where I mean? So 900 West Hastings, it's kind of... Yeah. I can't remember the corner it's on. But anyway, it's a really nice sort of mid-century modern building. And again, they'd commissioned a female sculptor, uh, Eliza Mayhew from Victoria. And she was really well known at the time, particularly for doing these really large sculptors. Anyway, the band commissioned her to do this amazing two-ton bronze sculpture. And there's a picture of it in the book when it went in. And they basically built the building around this sculpture because it was so huge. And um, so that lasted there for 30 years. And then the bank sold to another um, company that wanted to make it into, you know, traditional sort of office space and, and renovated the building. And it just didn't fit in with them, but it was too big to take it out and too expensive. So again, they just walled it up. So you've got this incredibly two-ton brass, you know, sculpture, bronze, sorry, not brass, bronze sculpture, um, sitting in this building, completely walled up, waiting for another renovation, I guess. <laughs> oh, my goodness. If you're just joining us now, my guest is author Eve Lazarus. She's the author of Vancouver Exposed, a book that it turns out is one of the most borrowed books of the last year at Vancouver Public Library. So cool. And this book is really entertaining. I had to speed read it. Lots of bizarre and quirky stories and characters and just tidbits of information about Vancouver that it's you might not otherwise know of. Like, did you know that Elvis only performed three shows outside of the States and one of them was here? Or that there's a fake house in Metro Vancouver? Eve, you're still on the line with me, right? I am. So maybe you can elaborate on that last one. What is the story of the fake house? Uh, it's one of my favorite finds. It's one of these hidden in plain sight things. And uh, I'm not quite sure how I found out about it. I think I'm, someone might have, you know, tipped me off on Facebook or something. But um, in the late 1960s, CN Rail built the Thornton Tunnel to take trains across over the Second Narrows Bridge and into Burnaby. So the tunnel's about three and a half kilometres long and it, it goes right under East Vancouver and a chunk of Burnaby Heights. And you know, a lot of people live me tell me you can sort of hear the vibrations, which is really interesting, I thought. But they needed a ventilation shaft at the midpoint. And so someone came up with this really clever idea to disguise it as a house. So the house is on a really large corner lot at Francis and I can't remember the cross street offhand, but um, it's a corner lot and it sits about 45 metres above the track and it's set in this really nicely landscaped garden and, but instead of this, you know, a kitchen and a dining room, it's got these big fans to, to you know, clean the air and it's been there since 1968 and I've heard from people, you know, neighbours that, you know, one guy told me he used to deliver newspapers there you know, didn't realise it wasn't a house and someone else thought it was a safe wow. house and someone told me they thought it was an animal crematorium and it's just had all these rumours over the years but actually all it is, it's a ventilation shaft. And it's it's semi-realistic looking, right? But there's oh, yeah. a strange fence around it. That's the yeah, giveaway. Yeah, it's kind of got a spiked fence that it sort of says to you, keep out, but, but not really. And, you know, when you look at it, it's got um, where the porch should be, there's sort of cement blocks, which is a bit suspect which I guess is why, you know, people thought it was, you know, crematorium or something like that. But yeah, just sitting there on prime piece of real estate. 
It really made me wonder how common those are, like in other places. Yeah, I imagine that um, hydro and things build, you know, certain structures to, to cover things up. But yeah, that would be an interesting one to explore, wouldn't it? The, the fake Absolutely. houses and buildings of Vancouver. Yeah, you have a, a section in the book about the downtown east side and how much it's changed. Can you elaborate on that one? Sure. Um, well, I guess, you know, for me, one of the biggest things when I drive down Hastings Street these days and, you know, I try to think about what it looked like at the beginning of, you know, the 1900s and because all those blocks were, were lined with theatres and the section of the street was known as the Hastings Great White Way after Broadway in New York. And there were just, you know, when you go to the archives and things and, you know, collectors had sent me some photos, there were these gorgeous old theatres and you, you can just imagine those sidewalks lit up with light bulbs and music coming out on the street and so I found photos of six of the theatres and again we've laid them out in a book you know with little obituaries um, showing them but you know most of them have been turned into things like parking lots and you know pretty unarchitecturally friendly SRO buildings and, and things like that. But yeah, the, the change to me is just incredible down there. And this story about Elvis having played the peony. <laughs> yes, that was one of them. Um, I had a lot of fun with um, 10 Things You Won't See at the Peony and yeah. just going over parts of the history. And that, that was one of my favourites. And uh, Rob Frith kindly at Neptune Records and uh, had some photos in his collection. So there's one of Elvis there. And he played at the Empire Stadium in August 1957. Uh, 26,000 fans paid $3.75 each to see him. Can you imagine? <laughs> I can't get a coffee for that much. <laughs> And the poor old building became sort of the, the home to the BC Lions and, and then was demolished back in 1993. But yeah, I was quite really nicely surprised to hear that Elvis had played. And of course, the Beatles also played in, in 64 at the same time. At that stadium. Yeah. And what else do we know about this stadium? Um, not much from from that, only that it was constructed in, in 1954 for the, the British Empire and Commonwealth Games. And then it became uh, home to the BC Lions for 30-odd years. And then there is this funny anecdotal story about Joey Fortes. Can you explain that one? Well, Joe Fortes, um, as I think most people are familiar with him, I would think now, aren't they? Go, go ahead in case they aren't. Maybe give some background. Okay. Yeah, it's a restaurant named after him and... Um, that sort of thing. Well, Joe Fortes was our first lifeguard, and uh, he was he was a black lifeguard, and he was much loved. You know, in Vancouver's early racism and things, people just loved Joe. And um, you know, again, there's a library, there's a restaurant named after him, there's a memorial fountain in Alexander Park, and when he died in 1922, the kids raised, I think, five thousand dollars, this incredible amount of money back then, and to, to build this memorial for him. But uh, Joe also lived right at the bottom of Bidwell on the water side of Beach Avenue. And I found this really fascinating. And there's a great photo in the book that um, Mark Trulove of Canadian Colour has colourised this Vancouver Archives photo. And it's Joe smoking, standing outside his little cabin on Bidwell. And it, it's quite gorgeous. And, but I think, you know, what most people don't know was that whole area of the waterside of Beach Avenue was lined with houses, at least 30 houses, 
all the way from what's now the Broad Street Bridge right up to the entrance of Stanley Park. And wow. Some of, yeah, I know. And some of them were, were, you know, mansions and some of them were tiny little cabins like Joe's. And the um, Parks Board had were going on a town plan from the 20s and the idea was to, you know, bulldoze English Bay back into its grass and, you know, have a nice drive-by for people so they wouldn't look at houses, they could look at English Bay. So eventually they expropriated all of the houses except for the Inglesey Lodge. That was really the last holdout. It was right opposite the Parks Board offices. So it must have been, you know, really upsetting for them, blocking their view and, and so forth. And it um, was a really affordable rental place, as you can imagine today. As then, there wasn't much of that. And, that, you know, big apartments, affordable renting. And a big fight went on to save the Inglesey. And the city chipped in. And in the end, it looked like the city was going to renovate the building and give it over for seniors housing, which would have been amazing. It was also it was a beautiful building. It was made by the same architect as at Sylvia Hotel. Oh, yes. And very similar um, to that, that terracotta style and, and so forth. And, and uh, just before council were about to meet and uh, award some money to them, the Inglesey burnt down in this spectacular and highly suspicious fire. Highly suspicious in is right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so fascinating. Eve, thank you for being with us this morning and sharing these incredible stories about Vancouver. Oh, my pleasure. I've had so much fun. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to the Weekend Mornings with Raji Sohal podcast. Be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And you can listen to the show live on 980 CKNW from 6 to 9 a.m. every Sunday. Have a great week.